Did you say fluffy mama? Fluffy, to be clear, fluffy.mama95. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got You want to get that dot in there. They appear in my recents. What does that even mean? I How don't know. I think, it's a con- I think it's a re- contact request. I mean. So people were trying to Skype you. I guess. It's yeah. fans. I don't want Meredith to come down here and see this, though. <laughs> it's, show, it's show fans. I'll be in kind of an Ashley Madison scenario. <laughs> <laughs> this was a great conversation the conversation with frank was a great conversation yeah the last the last episode oh my gosh this episode next week i have you know we've got uh, we've got a guest lined up who i think is going to be fantastic yeah um so i have high hopes for that one absolutely uh and then two weeks let's uh, let's let's do some planning there's nothing people think is more exciting in a podcast than the discussion of logistics yes let's have a logistics meeting yeah let's uh let's convene the order yeah we I don't know if the, the listeners detect this or not, but all of our shows go according to Robert's rules. <laughs> so, listeners, if you detect a, ver- a deviation from these rules, uh, please write in because we will yes. we'll correct this right away. There's, that's just the way this works. So I'd like to make a motion now. Joe, you have the floor. The, the, I have the escutcheon. You have the floor. <laughs> the escutcheon? I have the spindle. You have the oh armature. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This is... This is, uh, yeah. Oh, boy. Um, you had These quite are an, Robert's uh, Rules of Mordor. Yeah, I know. You had quite an education. I, <laughs> I, you had, you had a, uh, mine was mainly math. So, here's, <laughs> like, I wouldn't have pulled out the escutcheon reference. No. But let's just say, uh, in two weeks, we are going to have, I think, a, a viewer mail show. Yes. Um, and, 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 because our, our mail has been coming in at, at our a steady clip. mail bursts, so and, it overflows. But, but according to some themes. Yes. And we will discuss those. Th- I, I'm really looking forward to that, but we are not going to add on to the length of this show. No. Uh, by going through that feedback just yet. So if you've written us, just know that, um, in, in the, uh, in the Slack that you and I have, yep. right, is waiting all of that feedback and all of the feedback, which will come in from this episode last or whatever you have to say. So, yeah. uh, as we always say, feedback is the fuel on which Joe and I run because it certainly is not money. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Yeah. But this, uh, oral argument podcast at gmail.com yeah, or, or tweet us at oral argument or use or the Facebook, like us on Facebook. We're only, I, we don't have that many likes on Facebook. We've, we have a fair number of followers on Twitter. I think this, of course, this is, you know, eventually it's going to explode, right? Jim? Right. It's eventually this is going to get to, yeah, orders of magnitude more. Um, as we are orders of magnitude greater in terms of downloads than we and were when we started ago. the show. And, yeah. um, uh, anyway, uh, um, but, it, but I think we were like 95 likes, 96 on Facebook. If we get like four more, like something happens on Facebook, I don't Ooh. even know what it, it hints that, boy, you need four more to reach the next I level. I hope it so, like spits out a chocolate bar. I, <laughs> that would so, be, that would be worth having. Something tangible would be cool, right? It would be great. Yeah. So, uh, so but, if, yeah, I think we get more Twitter and email feedback. Really? We, we certainly do. But, yeah. but go ahead and like us on Facebook. And, and, uh, if there are, you know, we only need a few of you and I will report back on what happens when oh, we cool. cross that threshold. Cause right. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what happens. Uh, I guess the other thing you can do is rate the show on iTunes. You don't even have to leave a written review. But if you give us uh, five stars on iTunes, uh, more of that helps more people find the show. Yep. Helps more people find the show. And if you're inclined to give us fewer than five stars, I think you can say less because you can give half stars. Anyway, if you're inclined to give us less than five stars, uh, send us some feedback first. Maybe yeah. we can correct your problem. Or our problem. We can correct the problem right. of, of us that you've identified. Uh, is there anything else? So, so we're going to do that in a couple. So look for, you know, uh, if we haven't yeah, got your feedback, we're going to get to it. Yep. Um, and Keep it coming. Yeah. I bet Joe Miller is in that Ashley Madison database. 
you know, I, I'm I'm willing to bet you that it's actually in there in in ten different variants. Like yeah. the number of people named Joe Miller who are in the right age group, right? Because it's an older name. You don't, don't hear you the name Joe last... much anymore. Yeah. But, yeah. but for people in their 40s and 50s, right? Absolutely, tons of people named Joe, and it, Miller's very common. It seems to me that that's the Chicago phone book probably had 50 or 60 Joe Millers in it. That, that 40 to 50 range is probably the a- Ashley Madison demographic. It really is. <laughs> That's think. right in their wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> so there are probably lots of Joe Millers. All right, Isn't what there you... a somewhat nutty Alaskan politician named Joe Miller? There is. Uh, and and uh, this is the this... only thing I disagree with in that sentence is the word somewhat. <laughs> um, <laughs> this guy is a flat out nut job. <laughs> Should this go in the show? Absolutely. Do you think this should... <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll say up front, I don't know. I've only seen, like, I've seen him come up, I think when I searched for you or something, like something related to oh, the show and, and. No, and I remember and back, back when he ran, I remember at least once on Facebook saying, people, people, this is not me. Okay. Do not, <laughs> <laughs> I did not say this. This is not this Joe Miller. Right. Cause he is completely wackadoo. You, you know, I bet he tells his friends. This crazy Joe Miller on right. this podcast. That is not me. Right. Please, please. This uh, is and not I'm me. glad because I don't want there to be any confusion. <laughs> yeah. Since we're talking about trademark law today, source confusion How is apropos. Important. But yeah. yeah. I mean, this guy's crazy for an Alaska politician. <laughs> Are you trying to. <laughs> and that means he's just like. So far beyond the pale. Are you trying to alienate our Alaskan listeners, just like our North Dakota no, listeners? No, I'm trying to show them that I appreciate just what special snowflakes we they got really a, we are. We've got a few more downloads from North Dakota, I think. Oh, nice. I haven't, I haven't we, looked can recently. Can we dial him again? Can we try? We've got to keep this on the rails here. Joe, the, you like I don't to, know if you know, that I, are you aware you're on this show? <laughs> <laughs> on, on the rails is not... <laughs> All too aware. <laughs> Did you see we got a shout out on the AV Club? Yeah, that was really cool. Now, I uh, I will confess, I didn't know, I had heard of the AV Club site, um, but I didn't really know much about it. And then and then I looked, and it, they're, this, they're affiliated with the folks who, you know, do ClickHole and The Onion. and Right. So they're, they're, It used to be, I think, the Onion AV Club. I mean, it was, there oh, was okay. more direct branding, as right. it seems like. So um, it's, you know, yeah. s- smart, funny, young people. Yeah, and they have this thing called Podmass. Is it Podmas like Christmas or is it Podmas like podcast? How many uh, how many S's are there? Two S's as an ass. <laughs> <laughs> then I think it's Podmas, yeah. not Podmas. I think if they were trying to invoke Christmas, they would just have one S. Yeah. That's my guess. But see, it could be either because Podmas, because it's a mass of podcasts and it rhymes with podcasts. That makes right. sense, right? A podcast, Podmas would make Podmas. sense because like every week when you open up this article, it's like a, it's like a Christmas of, of podcasts. Because it's a it's a it's a, a bounty of gifts. Yeah. In terms of new podcasts to listen to. Anyway, it's worth checking out. We're going to put a link in there. Um, I will note too. They could that, call it Podonica or Podquanza. No, because that, no, no, because well, uh, if it were Podonica or something, they'd have to have like one new podcast every day for ten days. Fair <laughs> 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 um, point. Uh, eight, eight, to just... eight days. As opposed to just what am I? making a big, ugly pile of them on one morning. Yeah. Yeah. Ugly. It, well, big, m- sprawling pile. Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up with the, with your standard suburban, you know, somewhat privileged, but not rich in any sense Christmas. Okay. Where we lived above our means and we... <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for the and, American credit and, card. Christmas morning was... Uh, 
you know, for me, it was like, uh, like software and stuff. Mm. For the, and it was like, oh my, you know, it was a, there was a bounty. The cup runs over. Yeah. With Christmas mirth and. Boy, that was fun. Love. Um, but you know, the, the Flophouse podcast, you know, this one. I know of it. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm not uh, a regular, regular listener. I am a devoted listener. Cool. Um, a couple of, uh, daily show writers. Really? And yeah. Stuart Wellington and, uh, who's not a daily show writer. Uh, w- wonderful podcast. Cool. What about it? Well, th- th- I think they, you know, they got a bunch of new listeners from the AV club. Mm. So I think this is going to make us pretty much like the flop house. Yeah. On that level of super internet stardom. With the oral argument juggernaut. Right. I mean, to the point where we're going to be able to retire. (laughs) 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 Wow. We're just, you know, so we get a shout out from the AV club and we just sit back and let the money roll in. That's right. Right. From all of our sponsors. Yes. This week, Mm -hmm. brought to you by the AV club. So, (laughs) I don't (laughs) know. <laughs> I think the uh, I think the trick will be because yeah. um, I love this plan. I think this is a great plan. Oh, great! Because um, that's now. That, let me just say that's unusual for you to like a plan that I have. Fair enough. As I told you yesterday, um, I make it a policy in an to, official law school meeting. By the correct. way, this is now. Is this disclosing it? Is, can we disclose what? It I can disclose my meetings? own statement at the meeting. Okay. Absolutely. Let's go. Um, we'll, we'll use the grand jury approach. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I make it a policy to agree. Uh, with at least a third of the things you say, whether they merit it or not, really. I just feel like I need to keep that as my floor yeah, yeah. of agreeability. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I think you said so this in, this in response sense, to my statement that when you, I think in, in the meeting, disagreed wholeheartedly with something I had to say. Well, you couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, that's the <laughs> only reason I, I pointed out that it was flagrantly silly. I, I, I um, well. I mean, had there been even a, kernel of merit in it <laughs> I, I think i would have been i could i could you oh, know it would have been something to work with oh boy all right let's 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 maybe talk to our guest shall we let's, let's try get, let's get mark mckenna on the line yeah. and and otherwise we're going to relitigate all of the ways that you were horribly misguided in this particular meeting <laughs> so mark yeah the reason we thought it would be totally great to have you on the show is because we've talked a lot uh, over the many many episodes we've done let me just interrupt a reason a reason did i say the reason you said the reason as if there were only one reason to have mckenna on our okay no there's that's true there are at least two yeah there's (laughs) no there is a bursting cornucopia of reasons (laughs) but allow me to just single out one particular grape in that mass of uh, shiny fruit in the horn of plenty uh, oh boy you well you're the one who you got me started it's been too long since i've had the joe miller <laughs> metaphorical descriptions of of wonder and dread and and anger and joy so yes. let's keep going so here i go yeah um christian and i have talked a lot about issues that either were directly about patent law or touched on patent law and issues that were directly about copyright law or touched on copyright law but one thing we i think we have virtually never done in in this podcast is talked about trademark law and well, so that's sad i know it's sad right and you're here to make that uh, you're here to unsad it because... well can i inter- can i interject here joe of course okay um one reason that i think we keep coming back to patent is i think that we have at least some minor disagreements about patent whereas with trademark we both agree it is an essential component of the law 
right? And But maybe Mark can help us figure out where it is that we violently disagree within trademark. So let me just say, okay. with, with patent, Joe thinks it should exist and I do not. Easy, it's easy <laughs> enough, right? I just don't That's think... That's a pretty that, basic one, yeah. It's pretty yeah. basic and, and from there, lots of entertaining discussions emerge. Although with each passing year, I get closer to your point of view. Than well, you, that you don't, you're not coming anywhere closer to mine. I'm getting no, closer to yours. No, well. no, patent should not exist. Oh. But trademark should. So if, with that caveat, so so that's kind of... So, but I, I, we don't have any more specific version of the agreement that we have in trademark law, right? Other than at a very basic level, it serves a very, very important function. And we can talk about those. But yeah. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I tell my IP survey students that in, in contrast to patent law and copyright law, trademark law is the body of law that's actually indispensable to a functioning market. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that at, at the general level, right? I think if every, the devil's all in the details. So, I mean, I think there's no question to me that, you know, if if you want to have a functioning marketplace, you need uh, some significant body of trademark law. Um, the question is really, how broad does it need to be? What kind of uh, rights does it need to protect? What kind of exceptions and, um, you know, limits should it have? And I think those are the places that, you know, most people who do trademark law in the academic world um, have issues with trademarks. And so just to set the stage, because I think this is a should be a very accessible topic, even though IP quickly can sometimes get in the weeds. Mm-hmm. A, it, let me tell so, so I'm I'm the uh, the non-expert here, so I will represent our dear listeners. Um, there are there basically the four bodies. I mean, if four major headings of intellectual property, there's there's patent, which covers, let's just say inventions for right now. Like these are uh, ideas that can be put into action somehow. There's copyright, which covers expression, right? And so someone can't copy your expression. Um, there, there are publicity rights, which unlike the others uh, that we'll talk about are not covered in, uh, well, actually they are. There's the Lanham Act, I guess, which does some trademark and publicity rights stuff. But basically this covers like the right to your personality, maybe your voice. Uh, so it has a very kind of trademark-like function, but it's like ambiguous. That Maybe we can get into that. I don't know. Uh, and, and, and then there's trademark, right? Um, Mark, do you just want to tell us or, or Joe or both of you, like what's distinctive about why, why, what's distinctive about trademark that would lead to our at least high level agreement about that, um, between Joe and me where, mm-hmm. uh, that, that distinguishes it from the others. Um, well, yeah. well, so I just, on your list, I think some, some people would put trade secrets and design patents, especially on that list now, because design patents are sort of booming, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, when most people teach the IP survey, they're teaching uh, utility, patent, copyright, and trademark. Those are the big three. Usually people use trade secret as a sort of contrast to patent, or at least as a sort of background, um, a background set of rules that, you know, the patent law kind of reacts to. Um, so I think what, you know, what's, what's interesting about when you teach us the survey class is that um, at at least a high level of generality, most people teach patent and copyright as being motivated by similar kinds of um, concerns. It's incentive for people to produce, right? It's, it's, a, it's incentive for produce or at least share certain kinds of things. You can get more specific and talk about what, what those incentives are. Uh, trademark law typically is not justified that way. It's must, you know, it's a market-based and at least at its core, it's about, it's about deception, right? It's about, um, people being able to buy products with the confidence that they're getting what they think they're getting. And, you know, it, it, there's a lot of, there's a, you know, the market for lemons kind of analogy that if you don't, you know, when you buy a Coca-Cola, if you don't know that that's the same Coca-Cola that you're getting from the same company every time, 
then you have to take some other measures to figure out whether you're getting what you think you're getting. And that's either inefficient and you might not even do it. Right? Under some circumstances, you might just think the risk is too high. So I think most people do agree that at the, you know, at least at the core, um, it's really hard to have a market economy if you can't rely on any sort of signals for quality and uh, for, you know, for quality assurance over time. That's a really different justification than usually is given for, um, for patent or copyright. And I think that's why it's, it's in some respects an odd fit in, I, in the IP world. So I can, I can trademark in, and get federal and, and state protection maybe for my trademark in the word Coca-Cola, in the swoosh, in the, um, in the label, maybe even in the color red that's used on the, on the can. And, and the reason for that is not to, unlike patent and copyright, the reason why the law does that is not to encourage me to come up with all kinds of new colors or, or for new meaningless words, uh, or maybe even meaningful words. The reason it does that is so that consumers, when they see those things can know very cheaply without doing any research or anything else that, Hey, that comes from that person, the same person who made the last can of Coca-Cola that I bought. This new can has the word Coca-Cola on it. And, uh, and if I buy it, it will be from at least the same manufacturer. Um, right. and, same, and I don't have to think entity. about it. The right. same, the entity. same, yeah, ent- yeah, same yeah. entity sort of standing behind the quality. That's at least the core justification, right? And that, you know, obviously the list you gave of things you can protect with trademark law, that justification fits, you know, much better with some of those than it does with others. Like the, the more exotic, the kind of source identifier, the, the more challenging the justification is to fit it. But yeah, so it, in, and the magic of, you know, at least again, at the core of trademark law, the magic is this sort of convergence of consumer interests and producer interests so that, you know, consumers have a really strong interest in knowing that the Coca-Cola they're getting is the same Coca-Cola as before. Uh, but, you know, Coca-Cola also has a really strong interest in that too, because it wants to be able to get customers back who liked its product in the first place. And it doesn't want those people sort of deceived and lured away, you know, to somebody else who comes along. So there's that's the sort of magical story, right? That at the core of trademark law, there's this convergence of consumer and producer interests, and everybody is better off by having trademark protection. And and if you, uh, in terms of what you can trademark, I mean, I guess there's that Qualitex case about dryer pads, right, where the color green was trademarked, and right. and the idea is that you can you can trademark any. Any kind of attribute, you know, Breyer says in that opinion that the words in the statute really are not restrictive. It can be like any attribute that identifies the source, but which doesn't, which is not functional in the sense that it makes the product better, right? Because, because that's not a trademark purpose. That would be a patent purpose. If you come up with something that makes a product better, it's going to be protectable, if at all, under patent. Whereas trademark should be basically things which have no impact on the functionality of the product, but which serve to identify the, the source of, of the goods. Is that at least in a nutshell correct? Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, you're right that the Qualitex case sort of really broadly sweeps in pretty much anything that's capable of indicating source. The court has had to sort of back that down a little bit in a few instances, not because it's categorically abandoned um, any subject matter, but it has you know, subsequently recognized that certain kinds of subject matter raise particularly difficult questions. Um, and so it has, uh, in introduced some additional criteria for those. So the one that it's been most concerned with is what, it, what we call product configuration trade dress. So the, the shape and design of a product itself, you could see this in the Apple Samsung case, you know, the, the shape and the layout and the design of the iPhone itself, Apple claimed as a trademark. Um, and, you know, if you take Qualitex on its face, you would say there's nothing special about that claim as long as it indicates source and it tells people that the product comes from Apple. 
then all the same rules should apply. But, you know, in a couple of cases since then, the Supreme Court has said, well, that kind of trade dress is a little different because product configurations often do stuff besides indicate source, which, you know, you might distinguish pretty radically from the Coca-Cola label. So we're going to at least require you to jump through some additional hoops if you want to claim those. You're going to have to show us actual evidence that people do really think it indicates source. We won't assume that the way we might sometimes with words. And then you're right, the other big layer is the functionality layer. Um, the, the, you know, the big looming set of questions in trademark with respect to functionality is basically what kinds of function count um, in terms of ruling it out. And so the easy thing to say is, you know, the, the, the famous case about this, the most recent one, and uh, is a case about the, a dual spring design of a road sign. And the dual springs supposed to hold up the road sign better and keep it from twisting in the wind. Um, and the court says, look, that has some relationship to the product's function. It doesn't really matter if there are other ways to do it um, because it's related to the function of the product in a you know kind of base engineering sense. Um, you can't use trademark law to protect that. That's yeah, that, a, that seems like a super easy case, though. I mean, that'd be, so, yeah, it, it seems to me in retrospect like an easy case, but it was not at all. I mean, there was there was there were a couple of decades worth of law, and in in the majority position was you don't measure functionality by asking what the relationship is between the feature and the actual performance of the article. You just ask whether there are alternative designs that could get you the same function. And not surprisingly, when courts asked that question, they almost always thought the answer was yes. There was plenty of alternative designs. But so how is that? Yeah, how is that not just patent though? Because in patent, yeah. I mean, if if you well, that's that's why you would. I think you 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 started Christian with with a few minutes ago. You made the remark that you know patent is an is an important part of the overall picture, even when you're talking about trademark, because it's one of the tools you might use if you want to protect the functionality of the thing, um, and leave leave to the side for a moment how you're going to interpret the word functionality. If you want right. to re- protect that utility, it's functionality in that sense, um, uh, you should use the patent system. So the way you approach tr- functionality in trademark, one of the things it will accomplish is channeling people toward the patent system right. uh, when that's what you would prefer to do. And I think that um, if you use an approach to functionality that says as long as there are some alternative designs, it is not disqualifyingly functional you're not channeling them very hard toward patents. You're channeling them only somewhat weakly toward utility patents. And people right. would rather have trademarked because it's, it can be forever, right? Correct. Yeah, because, they, because they last forever and because they don't have to jump through novelty and ob- non-obviousness hoops, right? So you don't right. have to prove that your function is actually significantly different than whatever came before. You can just claim it. Now, in as I understand the, the uh, doctrinally, um, the... The trademark system, if you if you look at the things like the dual spring case, like the Qualitex case, uh, like another case, Walmart uh, against uh, Samara Brothers, which is about the another product design case and and about uh, it's about dress designs for kids, little uh, seersucker dresses. Uh, that that nice, the, nice. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that that the court um, is is that Supreme Court at least is is actually trying to uh, stream people, channel people rather strongly away from trademark and toward the patent system when one that when what they want to protect is the degree to which the thing is useful at accomplishing that problem solving thing right that functionalism yeah the the thing that's interesting about the walmart case right is that the design that they're claiming is a 
is the design of clothing that has no relationship to the kind of utility we, we often associate with the utility patent system. What it's doing there, I think, is saying this is really kind of a design patent thing, right? This is a sure. this is a sort of thing. And so this is the part this is the part that trademark law has struggled the most with. I think, you know, post traffics, uh, it's becoming pretty clear that, you know, the majority of courts have understood the message and understood that, you know, functionality is primarily about channeling things to, to to patent law that belong in patent law. It's not primarily about competitive need and how many alternatives there are. Where they've struggled a lot more is what about features that they don't relate to you know, mechanical function, but they do relate to the reasons why consumer consumers want the product. They affect the way the product works in that sense, in a, in a way that has nothing to do with its source designation, but just because people like seersucker, for example. And courts have had a much harder time with that in trademark law because, you know, they think, well, I can understand why you channel to utility patent, but I don't know, maybe maybe it's not such a big deal if people get designs that you know, people like for reasons other than source. So there's a, there's a doctrine for this. It's called aesthetic functionality, but it's not nearly as consistent or as robust as, as the one, as the kind from, you know, mechanical function. Now, before we go further, can you guys clarify for me and for the listeners, uh, what distinguishes the design patent from the utility patent? I mean, the utility patent, I think is what most people who aren't in the field think of as a patent. Like it's basically the cotton gen, you know, it's, it's this thing, which is like useful, it's an invention and no one's kind of come up with it before. Right. Um, but what's, what's a design patent and, and how is it similar to a utility patent? Shall I do this name? one, Mark? <laughs> sure, go ahead. Um, so a design patent is a patent in the sense that, uh, to get one, you have to go to the patent office, you have to apply for it and it, and your application has to be examined for compliance with legal requirements, including the requirement that the thing that you want to protect be new and that it be non-obvious. Uh, now, the thing you're trying to protect in a design patent is not the usefulness, again. It's the ornamental design. So design patents, like copyright and trademark, when they're being applied to things that have functions, design patent says, this is not the functional aspect. So there's a functionality exclusion for design patent every bit as much as there is for trade dress. And for yeah, co- although, although that, that exception in design patent is much more weakly enforced. And of course it is, because... Uh, when you're talking about a pa- another patent system where there is going to be examination for novelty, for non-obviousness, uh, misidentifying whether you're in the functional box of utility patent or the design, the ornamental box of design patent isn't as big a mistake to make as it would be to misidentify what's happening in a trademark context, right? Where if you get it wrong and you let someone use trade dress to protect functionality, you're giving them on the sly, mistakenly, a a utility patent without any of the rigors of patent examination. If you give them a design patent, uh, excuse me, yeah, when you give them a design patent when they should have gotten a utility patent, that's just not as big a mistake. So we take less to guard against it. So Christian, and I'm not, we're not helping you identify places of disagreement between you and Joe, <laughs> but now you've highlighted one between me and Joe. Excellent. Uh, so Joe's I'm, right I'm sure, let me this. just say in advance, I agree with you, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if only because you disagree with Joe. Exactly. But, um, so I, I think Joe, in principle, would be right if the design patent system actually functioned in a way that you had a use uh, a, a meaningful non-obviousness requirement. So that if there were actually meaningful hoops to jump through to get a design patent, Joe would be right that you might be less worried. You'd still be worried, I think, because you might prefer people go through the utility patent system than the design patent system. 
Um, in fact, like the existence of the design patent system, it's premised on the idea that there's something importantly different about what you're claiming yep. uh, in those two things. Um, but you know, it w- the cost wouldn't be as high if you thought there there was actually rigor in the design patent process. Um, I'm pretty confident there is no rigor in that process. Virtually every design patent uh, that's applied for is issued. Courts have never figured out what non-obviousness means in the design patent space. And, the, and there's a reason for that because it's just a concept that doesn't fit well with ornamentality. So in a world in which we had meaningful entry criteria in design patent, I would agree with Joe that there's no reason to enforce as strongly in design patent as you do in trademark. But uh, but I don't think that's actually the world we live in. Yeah, and and you know, I look. I don't think design patents should exist any more than any other kind of patent. I, I have an alternative, but um, but just to to kind of take it back to um, well, so take the uh, you remember the original IMAX with the candy colored uh, yeah. plastic shells, oh, right? Yeah. So I have no idea how what the what what the patent role was there, but let's just assume that like people hadn't used that kind of uh, colored plastic shell in computers before. Uh, I presume you could get a design patent. You might be able to get a design patent for that if you use this kind of color plastic in a new way, et cetera. And it doesn't affect the way the computer functions under a traditional utilitarian notion of what computing is. Uh, but trademark would not extend so far to the extent that maybe, you know, the Samsung of the day came along and said, hey, those look cool. And they want to make basically a knockoff, but they make it different enough so that no consumer is actually confused. And that you can't even have an objective sense of consumer confusion that says, hey, you know, uh, co- people are confused about the source and therefore we can use trademark uh, to make sure that, you know, copycats right. don't come along. And Why did you say trademark wouldn't go as far? What do you mean by that? I don't me- understand. Meaning that I assume that the if you patent the use of these colored plastics in computing, right, that the, um, it, the Samsung of the day, right, which would have been Dell or something like that, uh, uh, or, or maybe IBM even at that point, that they wouldn't have been allowed to use those colored plastics in the ornamental design of their own computers, right, even if they did so in a way that wasn't confusingly similar to the iMac. Right. Isn't that the role of the no, design patent? Or, a, then how is it different than what you get? A, a design patent protects a series of drawings. So the drawings that you use to render your design, I mean, you're claiming a particular ornamental design. You're not claiming the use of any colored plastic in the in the casing for a computer. That's not what a design patent would look like. It would have particular drawings with particular shading to represent particular a particular configuration of the ornamental appearance. Right. So the question would be, is the person using that same ornamental appearance in the thing they're selling? That's so it protects the, infringement the design question. as a whole? Yes. Yes. Well, it, the, it, it protects the design, the design as depicted in the drawings, right? So, right. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, of course, uh, I don't know if Apple did this, was doing this as much back in the days of the old initial iMac, but it certainly is now. Um, Apple wouldn't have a design patent on that. It would have it would have hundred. Yeah. yeah. It would have a number of them, and it would depict it in lots of different ways. So, yeah, I mean, in principle, you could say if there was like a single design patent that um, it's both broader and narrower than a um, than a trademark. What trademark protection? It's broader in the sense that it doesn't require evidence of confusion. If it's if it's similar enough to the design and the drawings, it's infringing, and it doesn't matter if consumers aren't confused. It's also narrower in the sense that it doesn't allow much. At least traditionally, didn't allow much latitude. Uh, for you to claim infringement when there is deviation from that. So there was this, the level of similarity traditionally required to infringe a design patent was pretty high. 
that's actually unclear at this point because the level of similarity found to infringe in the Apple Samsung case, what I thought was pretty strikingly low. Um, uh, so, but this is a this is a thing that trademark law hasn't really contended with that strongly over the last couple of decades. Um, there's some really famous cases from the middle of the century. Um, that most people teach as preemption cases, the Sears and Comco cases, um, that are actually design patent cases. The yep. Comco case is a straight-up trade uh, unfair competition versus design patent case, and there the Supreme Court says you can't claim it with trademark because it's not uh, because it's the kind of thing that you use patent for, and they mean design patent there. Over the last few decades, that sort of way of thinking went away, and that people started thinking of the patent trademark conflict entirely in terms of the conflict between utility patent and trademark. So the level, the extent to which now trademark law will permit you to both claim it as a trade, as a design patent and use trademark law is, is still pretty high. And trademark hasn't really worked out that, that side of the conflict. And I think the functionality thing is, is a, it can be a key way to work out that conflict that the diff, the different l- ways that you define functionality, referring, uh, defining it in a way that it's much easier to trigger the functionality trapdoor that shoots you out of the system, designing it to be much uh, easier to get sh- shot out of the system in trademark law is going to channel people toward design patents. Right. In an appropriate way. And then once those design patents expire, of course, Mark is uh, 100% right. The the Sears uh, Copco case, um, it's not just about a design patent. It's about an expired design patent. So once you've had your shot in that level of protection with that mechanism, you're done. You don't get to go back and double dip with, oh, and now I'll use a trademark theory. But as a practical matter, um, if you if design patents protect a drawing or series of drawings uh, uh, depicting the ornamental design of the, of the product. Uh, and as a practical matter, would there ever be an infringement of that design patent so that, you know, the, the product produces really close to the, to the drawing uh, that, that wouldn't also be a trademark infringement? I, again, I, I get the legal distinction because the test is different. But just as a practical matter, if someone produces a product which is exactly like that drawing... Isn't that always going to, can you imagine there not being consumer confusion or the potential for consumer confusion in such a case? I can imagine that a lot because uh, it, design patents are not limited to the design of an entire product. So you can claim small components of a, of a product in a design patent. You can claim little bits, little bits and pieces of features. In fact, Apple often claims many different features separately in design patents. And so if you imagine looking at a product overall, there might be lots of reasons that overall there's no confusion, even though uh, yeah. one component of the product looks exactly the same another, as it. So. Another reason to think there could easily be a case where there is design patent infringement but not trademark infringement is because although to an ordinary observer they appear to be the same object, um, if a consumer doesn't think of the design of that object as a source indicator, Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole thing you're asking in trademark right, law. Right. Do they think of that as an indication of where it is, like, right. who made it, right? If consumers don't think of that configuration as that kind of signal right. in that context, and they very well may not, right. well, then, there, then of course there isn't trademark infringement, even though there would be design patent infringement. An ordinary observer looking at those two objects would say, yeah, that's basically the same object. So what's the what's the justification for design patents if they can work on that granular scale or do we are we worried that unique elements of design will be underprovided? Yeah, well that's the theory. And the statute was originally passed in the 1840s and yeah. in the and the the argument made at the time was Wasn't that back when all the phones had cords? 
Yeah. <laughs> that was the, the awesome argument before the all floods. the phones did. Yeah. <laughs> the argument at the time was that um, you know, uh, in- aesthetic uh, encouraging people to accomplish in- innovation in the aesthetic appeal, uh, in aesthetic appeal, was every bit as important as encouraging people to innovate with with useful things too. I mean, it's make, a good idea. Make the world want, pretty as well as useful. I mean, that, of but, course you uh, want that. There's a couple of things that are important about like the world. I mean, Joe's right that when they pass it in 1840, first of all, copyright didn't extend for the most part to three-dimensional objects. So you couldn't use copyright to protect. And what, what was pretty clearly the, the thing animating design patent when it was uh, created was surface ornamentation for things like dishes and silverware. Yep. And, you know, and things like that. And so like this, you know, if you imagine, you know, the, this, the China you see in any particular store, like the surface ornamentation on that, the flowering and things, not there, there was really no effective protection for that because copyright wouldn't reach it um, for the most part. And trademark law wouldn't. Trademark law used to draw a pretty radical distinction by and large between saying, you know, those kind of things are not trademarks per se. You might be able to use unfair competition, but they were pretty, it was, pr- most courts were pretty hostile to any sort of protection for a product design at all. So there was a sort of lacuna in the law, and that was the sense, right, that we, if we want people trying to, you know, make more uh, beautiful objects, that there's really no way to protect it. The, the odd thing about that is that, of course, now both copyright and trademark law reach those things. And so there's also design patent law out there. And design patent law has evolved in a way that it's clearly not just about surface ornamentation. It's about actual configuration of products. And so all these conflicts, which have existed for a few decades, but the design patent system was not being used very heavily, so they didn't come up very often. Now the design patent system is being used quite heavily, so they're gonna these are gonna all have to be worked out over the next couple of decades or so. Right, like for a, for a time, for example, there was the the view that uh, design patents, which in the words of the statute, are, are limited to articles of manufacture, which you know sounds like it could be you know, the tiniest replacement part in your automobile that you never see, right? Yeah. That's certainly an article of manufacture. However, the thought was, well, it protects the ornamentality. That very notion that you're protecting the ornamentality of something, it means it has to be something that in ordinary use appeals to your aesthetic sensibility. If it's something you never see when you're using it in the ordinary way that it is used, yeah, of course, a design patent wouldn't be appropriate. You don't need to encourage people to make a prettier thing that sits in the middle of a machine three feet thick that you never see, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that uh, was uh, rejected by the Federal Circuit in a case about um, the aesthetic appeal of a, uh, a, a stem prosthesis uh, that uh, would wind up inside your body, right? Uh, but uh, someone sought a design patent on it because it had these interesting uh, arrangement of curved elements on it on its surface uh and the party made the argument that well look um when we advertise this hip stem prosthesis in magazines and at trade shows uh that could draw the attention of a surgeon every bit as much as some other characteristic of the prosthesis and while it's true that it will ultimately wind up in your body there is a point in time when people are considering whether to use it or not and that's part of its ordinary use. So p- design patents apply. Well, once you take that very expansive approach, now design patents really do apply to the cartridge of ink in your inkjet printer, if anyone has any of those anymore, or your, your toner cartridge, or your replacement part inside the engine of your car, right? So very small objects buried deep in other objects are suddenly design patentable. 
That was not true until the 90s. And this is reg- this is regrettable from your point of view. Well, I think it's uh, uh, I don't I'm not sure about that, but but I am sure that it's a rather dramatic expansion of the of the availability of this mode of protection. I mean, I think that's hard to argue that it yeah. that it's not. And what it does is that, you know, every time one of these forms of protection expands, it increases the risk of conflict with one of the other systems in ways that haven't really been thought out. So uh, things that, you know, previously wouldn't have had to worry about conflicting now do because now there's a bunch of additional subject matter that you have to protect. And those, of course, the more you're talking about features like, you know, car parts that you don't really see, the more risk there is of you're talking about features that actually do relate to how it works and where it fits and those sorts of things. So there's it puts more pressure on doctrines that are meant to divide the systems up. So we've got these, you know, so we've got these different categories of, uh, of, of things in the world and things that people work on. And we're trying, and what the law is basically doing is mapping those categories onto, um, um, uh, of the availability of different kinds of monopoly, either time limited monopolies, but also there are fair use doctrines, which apply and copyright, which apply. Maybe there, I know there's the kind of the equivalent of fair use in, in trademark, but it's a little bit different, right? And the same for patent, I think, right? Uh, there's something like that, though, right? You're shaking your listeners can't see. You no, there is your no head. fair use exception in patent law. There is there 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 may be a sort of philosophical use exception, but it's it's almost gotten small enough to just vanish. Yeah, it's at the vanishing point. Yeah, maybe the patentability cases serve a little bit of the same role. You can't lock up things that would prevent other kinds of innovation or building on top of ideas which are fundamental, you know? Um, yeah, there, well, if, if what you meant by fair use doctrine was simply the idea that the law develops a way to make sure that this form of protection is not available in a case where it would be contrary to its basic purpose for it to be available. Right. If that's what you mean by right. fair use, then sure, patent yeah. laws, patentable subject matter doctrine is probably the closest thing we have to a fair there's use a, idea. There's another sense of fair use too, right? And there's sometimes where fair use, and this I think happens in trademark law, it's where the issue is not so much, is it would it be contrary to the purposes of, of this system? It's, um, are there other reasons that are external to this system that even if it might serve some value uh, consistent with this particular system, we don't want to let it be protected anyway, right? It might interfere with speech too much, or it might interfere with competition, and and there are just reasons to limit it, even if you get some marginal value. So trademark law has a bunch of these doctrines, and actually it struggles a lot with how to define them because there's simultaneously an impulse to say, well, you know, uh, in some sense, uh, fair use is to say, look, this is you know this wouldn't be good a good use of trademark law because it doesn't serve trademark law's purposes. But trademark law's purposes are pretty much about protecting source designation. And there are a lot of times where you might think, yeah, this thing does do some source designation, but still the value that it adds in source designation has to be compared with the harm that it might cause to allow singular protection of it. And so it tries to strike a balance. I think the functionality doctrine is a good example of this. So that the functionality doctrine does not say, and in fact, this is important because parties sometimes try to sneak around it by saying this, it doesn't say that features that are functional are not protectable because they don't indicate source. Right. In fact, it says features that are functional are not protectable even if they indicate source. Right. We're just not willing to pay the price right. yeah. of this other distortion, of letting you get a quasi-patent. Right. Because one, one commonality of all of these areas, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe continuous with other areas of the law, is that all of these pursue purposes at, at costs. 
Right? Right. And, and those costs can come in the form of, you know, free speech. Um, like if you take an aggressive, you know, did you see Banksy just came out with this dismal land yeah, thing? Dismal land. Totally yeah. cool, right? This whole basically a bemusement park, I think they call it, right? So it's a whole area which is, you know, is is full. And, and actually he says in the area, it's a they because he's got some other artists working there. Uh, it's a whole area in England where there's a, 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 an amusement park which has, you know, takes various takes on like it's got a turned over Cinderella um, carriage with Cinderella dead and horses dead. It's, like, it's, it's, dis, it's dismal land. It's got a castle which is burned, and st- so it's it's full of things which, under an aggressive IP regime, could be either um, copyright violations or, or trademark violations, um, right. or both, or, or or both. Yeah, I think this is part of the overlap. But um, uh, but but obviously, you know, the the you can take the position that no one's going to be confused because everyone knows this is parody satire commentary um but you could also take the position that um uh you know if you want to make comments about society you should use your own stuff right you could you could take that i don't right but you could take that position but taking that position comes at a cost now banksy would have to find if he can't use disney's trademark characters to illustrate a point find another way to make the same point have to have the same emotional resonance with people right building on the uh, using something else, right? And that, that would come at a cost to the art. So all of these areas in, you know, patent, trademark, copyright, personality rights, they, they all, they all share that, that feature, right? Yeah, right. And I actually, uh, they share that feature and they all strike the balance in different ways. Um, and so, you know, when, when there is overlap between the system, it's particularly challenging because they draw the balance in different ways. And so it's a little hard to figure out which of the systems form of balancing should win here right and, and because they all have different purposes and reasons for existing right and yeah, so right you know if it's if we're concerned that consumers are going to be confused about source right then that's a trademark purpose right a trademark purpose is to prevent that confusion but only up to a certain cost right, right. And, and uh and that cost is it's usually you know that's not it's not like there's a balance so it's a it's a qualitative rather than quantitative judgment about whether that cost is too high typically right, right? um Whereas with copyright, at least with fair use, you could say there's a slightly more quantitative judgment about whether the infringement is worth its costs, right? Because you, you th- that fair use balance is so um, – uh, it at least enables Breyer-type balancing of copyrights, benefits, and costs, right? Yeah. Um, and Sometimes at a pretty high level of generality, though. Uh, I think almost invariably at a high level of generality, right? Because these things, these quantities are very hard to pin down. The, the other thing I wanted just to note is that, and I hope the listeners are kind of picking up on this, if, especially if you aren't in this area or aren't in, in law at all, um, kind of the way that um, that you guys are talking about the trade-offs between these systems, it shows that when, when, when people encounter like a copyright issue in the popular press or trademark issue, um, if the, even if the article or, or, it, uh, um, or opinion piece is not vague about which particular branch of IP is involved and it vague, often vague, is vague or sometimes just wrong, just wrong. Yeah. They'll say copyright and they mean trademark or right. those means, you know, that, so even if they get it right, usually what's missing from an analysis of whether this is right, fair, good, whatever is exactly the kind of thing you guys are kind of going through carefully. That is that hey, there's this set of purposes for this particular doctrine, it protects this particular kind of thing, and it comes at these costs. But this could also, you know, there's also a slight overlap here with these other different kinds of purposes. So a lot of what, like, you know, law does is at a higher level, if you're a practitioner or, or a law professor in this area, is to think about these overlaps and solve these very, I think, difficult problems of, of what to do with the real things out in the wild. Uh, that, you know, well, like, let's take the Samsung iPhone 
case, uh, Samsung Apple case, and maybe even go back further. You know, I remember when when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone on stage, you know, there's that famous slide that he put up that showed all of the existing phones, right? And all the existing phones had plastic buttons on. They pretty much all smartphones looked the same at that point, or, you know, they looked of a piece. Um, and the iPhone looked completely, completely different, right? It was a, a piece of glass, um, basically a piece of glass floating in the air. Right? Uh, with a single button. Right, with a single button. Um, and then after that, of course, th- then kind of the copycats come in. Everybody realizes, well, this is how phones are going to work. And some of them were, they were all black rectangles, right? Uh, some of them were a little bit more distinctive in how they looked. You know, what e- even their particular version of Android used slightly different icons. Others were just pretty much look like direct ripoffs of the, of the iPhone. And the argument early on is, well, there's not much other way to do this, right? That this is... And you, you hear like Johnny Ive or the other Apple designers talk about it and they talk about how much work went into making the design appear inevitable, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so there's, how do you, in these areas, I mean, I don't know if you want to take this from a trademark angle or in terms of a separation between areas angle, but when we look at things like the smartphone, um, like I have a lot of sympathy with the designers who work really hard to make something look obvious. And that that design spirit seems to work directly against the things you need to show in order to get, say, a patent, right? Which is that it's not obvious, right? Um, but of course, it's infected by hindsight bias. Well, there's no other way to do a phone until like some innovator comes up and has a completely different way of of making a, a black rectangle appear or, or positioning buttons or, or making the OS appear as something other than a collection of squares that you can tap on to launch apps. Um, do you know what yeah. my question is getting at? Like, you know, it's, it, it seems like um, when we look at the iPhone uh, in particular, and we look at these three or four, depending on how you want to count it, doctrines of IP law, and we're thinking, well, like, okay, Apple is clearly an innovator here. I don't think anybody denies that, right? They're doing something uh, new. You can point to prior art in this area, that area, or that area, but like there's a new kind of thing here, which is going to totally change the industry, totally change the way that different companies invest in developing things like this. Yep. Um, what kind of protection, if any, is appropriate there, right? And how do you deal with the problem that they have made something which looks simple and inevitable, yeah. but that was their goal? Like, what, what do you do? I think there's a really, it's a pervasive problem in design, right? Which is that, uh, I mean, I think first, if you just start from first principles, it's actually a little hard to articulate um, what the compelling justification is for design protection at all, right? If you think of it in patent terms, you'd be saying, well, is this innovation we would have gotten even without protection, right? And I think in most cases in design, the answer is yes, that there's a lot of compelling reasons for people to invest in design because they can capture it and market returns and first mover advantage and all that sort of stuff. And then in most cases, design is not the sort of stuff that requires investment like pharmaceutical drug development so that you'd likely to get it. Um, which means that I think people's instincts, like the one you're just describing, are really not sounding in sort of utilitarian incentive story uh, themes. They're they're more like moral rights, right? Like these people spent a lot of time and energy on this; they should get rewarded for that. Um, and then the and then it's a challenge to figure out what form of protection you would give to reward, because I think you just identified both the benefits and the cost, right? You think, yeah, there's a new thing. Maybe there's some value in protecting that. On the other hand, like they've sort of created a new market, right? And it's going to impose costs on other parties if they're not able to to compete in that market. So, you know, patent law strikes that balance by saying, yeah, so we're going to give you, that's why we're going to give you not very long. Um, 
in theory, that's what design patent does too, depending on how broad the rights are. I, I think you know the challenges in design patent are, are primarily the result of a couple of things, one of which is um, that it seems increasingly clear that the level of similarity required to infringe is not as high as it used to be. Um, and the big thing is the damages. I mean, the, the damages rule in design patent is nuts. It basically allows you to claim the entire market value of the product um, without trying to account for like, so for example, when Samsung infringes Apple's phones, the design patent rule says they get the entire value of the Samsung phone, which means there's apparently, according to the design patent system, zero value in the actual functioning of the thing as a phone, right? It just, it's entirely about the design. Yeah, so, and what is the, what is the length? That, is it 14 years? For it's, well, it's now 15, 14 yeah. years for existing patents, but we just joined uh, a convention that requires it to be 15. So for new pat- new patents issued, it'll be 15 years now. So, so economically and technology, that's forever. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of the, of the copyright going to life plus 70. I mean, you know, if it's for phones. Fo- yeah, that, for that phones. Be, uh, yeah. yeah, 2022 is when the iPhone design patent would expire, yeah. right? <laughs> that's For phones, that's clearly right. I mean, this is also design patent struggles with the same thing that copyright and, and uh, utility patent do, and that is the one-size-fits-all nature of the system, right? Which is so if you could tailor the system and say, look, for the iPhone, maybe the appropriate form of protection is a pretty narrow uh, protection that only lasts three years, right? And then, and then everybody else gets to get in the market or something. But that, you know, for other kinds of designs, maybe a little bit longer is okay. It's not as harmful. The problem is the system doesn't allow you to do that. Like anything that's in the design patent is getting 15 years. Well, what, what would be wrong with this? So, so, you know, from my perspective, like in 2007, the iPhone comes out and I've got no, so personally, like I've got no problem with with people, you know, immediately jumping on multi-touch and making phones which are just glass without buttons. Like I want people to come in and put pressure on that market to keep innovation charging along, right? So, so again, I've got no uh, uh, no particular attachment to patents. Um, I do think that coming in and making something that looks like the iPhone, but of course, inevitably slightly worse is kind of gross, right? So these, this early, the, the, especially the early round of Android phones that came out, like which were immediately trying to get on the market. I thought okay, were, and gross. Why just say more about what it is that's gross about it. I mean, to you, yeah. right? Part because you see it so clearly as being a different thing to the degree that Apple appeals aesthetically, for example, to, to a specific viewer, um, that person is not going to be turned on by no, that other right, phone. They're yeah, not going right. to be interested in it. It's not so. So Apple's not going to lose a sale based on the presence of that other phone in the market. So what is it about when you say it's gross? Well, gross. Why or how? Well, to be or clear, in I'm talking sense. about those early phones. I mean, there's a lot of interesting new stuff, and and Palm with its uh, early entries, which did not work, were kind of. I mean, there were lots of good ideas that were. Okay. I'm talking about those early n- things that were basically kind of knockoffy, um, but used bad typography and they, okay. they, were, they were kind of they were kind of gross and you so you so your point is that like you know if if enough people think that way you don't need any protections at all because well uh, i'm just trying market, to figure out what right, happens right. when that thing comes well, on well, the market here's right here's what and I'm, what's the need to right, try to prevent right, that here's event what from occurring here's what i'm thinking so you come in you create a new market with a new kind of thing and it's maybe it's well designed maybe it's medium well designed who knows but you come in with a new thing and if there's no protection at all, you have what's, you know, you guys know is called first mover advantage, which means you're the first one in the market. And so for a while, you'll be able to get monopoly profits just because no one is competing with you because it takes some time to ramp up and build new things. Right? And if there is a source indication trademark system that's functioning properly, people will know that it's that company that provided it. Right. So, so the, you don't have to have a protection that's specific to that 
a widget. Right. You can have the overall trademark that is, anything that company sells, it can label with that mark and you'll know it's from that company. Right. So there's not just the advantage of being first. There's the advantage of people will know you were the person who was first. Well, that, right. that that's what I really wanted to think about protecting, right? Is um, because very shortly, in, at least in my memory, uh, after the introduction in the summer of 2007, I mean, there was January was introduced in, on, on the market in summer of 2007. These knockoffs started to appear, right? And, um, and it was not too long after that, at least in kind of just common people who aren't nerds about this kind of thing, right? people who have normal lives, let's say. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they look at these, they go into a store, they look at these different phones, they say, oh, there's the iPhone, but there are these other ones, and it's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, these, this is just the way phones are now, right? Um, and that, here's what I'm wondering. Is there a way to protect, and we've talked about this before, Joe, I would be looking for, for intellectual property, if anything, to protect not Apple's use of these technologies. I don't think that should happen like i'm fine with people stealing it actually um but apple's identity as the innovator like so that you so what makes you think it's not protected what makes you think they are lacking in the protection of their identity as the innovator um what's the evidence just kind of casual evidence that um no let's see i don't know i mean casual evidence that when people think about thought about these phones shortly after 2007 um that they kind of thought of these as like basically the same thing that came at the same time. Like, well, they take from them, they take from, uh, you know, Apple takes from Android, Android takes from Apple. And there's a little bit of that, like, especially with, I forget which OS introduced the pull down notifications and stuff. Right. But like, I, I don't, I mean, I mean, so it sounds like your evidence is the mere presence of those other things in the store that a person could walk up to and mistakenly think of as being, you know, well, this is almost as innovative as the iPhone, when it, your understanding of the facts and the history suggests that it, that isn't at all true, right? Right. Um, that, that's your evidence. I, uh, I don't have a good answer for you about how to protect that, but I can't help relating that I'm reminded of the, the, the sort of funny one-panel cartoon, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in bed in a minute, honey, there's someone wrong on the internet. Like it, <laughs> the why, fact why that, that the fact that ill-informed people think things that you think are are baseless. No, it's not that. No, it's not that. It, it's that. Um, like, who cares? I, I don't mind knockoffs being on there, but it should be more obvious that. Well, uh, well, let's see. I do mind knockoffs. So, uh, <laughs> right, Mark, it, help me out here. It's, What's, it's the tra- yeah. what, what are you hearing when he so, describes? So, well, this? let me just let me let me be concrete about it. Right. So, okay. w- the kind of thing that I would want to see is it, that it's fine to make a, a multi-touch phone. Uh, this is in 2000. I wouldn't let this last very long. Like now all bets are off, right? This would be maybe a couple of years okay. of, of protection of your identity as an innovator, right? And the one you wouldn't, you know, the glass is fine. The multi-touch is fine. Maybe even one button is fine. But it needs to be arranged in a way that, that makes it clear that it's a different thing. All right. Now you may think, well, trademark should be able to do that, right? But trademark functionality is strong enough, perhaps, right, that it would get you around um, you, you can make something which looks and works a lot like the iPhone in those initial uh, days because trademark is not s- strong enough to keep out things which you can argue are functional. And I'm just wondering if a very short period of keeping 
you know, I'm not sure how you would define keeping uh, innovators with, outside of a zone of epsilon around the uh, original innovation. I'm not sure how you would do that. But maybe, you know, th- that's why I started this whole thing by asking about the challenge of what uh, of uh, protecting innovative designs that appear inevitable. Yeah. You know? So uh, I guess a couple of things about that. The first is part of what you're talking about, about when you say, you know, the, the glass is fine and, you know, some of these other things are fine, but you just want it far enough away. Part of that, that's really just sort of ultimately like how much similarity is necessary to infringe. And it sounds like you want the sim- level of similarity to be quite high uh, to infringe because you're willing to say borrowing of some of those features that are claimed is okay. Um, that's either a way of thinking about like an infringement standard or it's a way of thinking about the kind of requirements you'd impose on claiming, right? That you might require people not to claim individual features like the glass you'd have to say you have to claim the entirety of the product or you have to claim collections of the product i don't think either one of those is a current rule of the design patent system but you could imagine moving in that direction it would especially on the claiming side take some real change I, i think joe's point though was it's probably you're probably right i mean you are right clearly after the apple samsung federal circuit decision that trademark law is not going to protect the arrangement of a lot of those features because they have explanations that are functional. But I think Joe's point is, was actually not specifically about that. It's to say the Samsung phone is going to say Samsung on it. It's not going to say Apple on it. So people will know that it isn't the Apple device, right? And so it's, it's pretty clear that no one's going to buy it thinking that it is an Apple. So the kind of cost you're talking about is a softer sort of, um, is there a cost to Apple just by virtue of Samsung being able to offer something that consumers know is not the iPhone, but is kind of resembling the iPhone. Yeah, yeah it's, it's and, and to be clear, it wouldn't be Sam, Samsung didn't really even come in until a little bit later. And so they may have come in after the period where Whoever. I'm actually concerned. I mean, some yes, other firm, uh, bling yeah, bling right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, They're going to have know. their name on their yeah. phone. Yeah. So. Um, how, how to say this? Um, so, so great design is really can be really easy to copy and really hard to come up with, right? Which is a traditional kind of justification for some kind of IP regime for design patents, <laughs> right? Um, uh, it, where, yeah, where. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just gave Christian a sad. I know I would be, yeah, but I'm not interested in, in a design. I'm certainly not interested in a long, like a 15 year patent yeah. period, right? Although you might like one that was three years or five years, maybe two. I mean, maybe very short. I mean, you know, right. maybe it should be related to the period of uh, the expected period of innovation in the technological space. But, um, but, but yes, I, something that. Um, that goes beyond. So it's not that consumers are not going to know whether this comes from Apple, right? It's that two year period where if, if competitors flood the market with, with, um, with, you know, lookalikes, sound alikes, feel alikes right away, then what gets lost is the idea that this company pioneered something new. And what gets eroded is kind of the purity of that design that they originally came up with, right? So in a way, this is maybe I'm thinking of a little bit like a tar- – I'm looking at a very weak, yeah. it's like short, a short protection. Was, yeah, which right. very much. Which incentivizes people to do the kind of thing that Apple did, right? I mean, what you want companies to do that. And Apple has – one argument is Apple has every incentive to do that of course because they, they make a lot of money. Uh, just even in that short term and because of just building their brand as an innovator. And, and so they don't the need help building they, a brand as an innovator. They can leverage it. Yeah, that's the thing. With the brand, they can leverage it. And so like some of that benefit is durable, even without any explicit protection for it. 
especially among the people who care about that very thing, right? right. They will know, they will, they will have the, um, the mental content that links Apple as an identity to this accomplishment, right? I mean, I guess we could, you know, if, if you want to get an Hitachi phone in 2008, you have to eat this little packet of ash, <laughs> right? You will, will let you get yeah, the phone, yeah. will let you use it, but you have to eat this very like bitter thing every time you use the phone no. or maybe just the first time you open the box or something <laughs> so that you feel bad, right? That no, you know, no, you're no, not yeah, getting no. the good thing. You, you're, you're being, you're, you're, you're basically a knockoff user. Yeah. I'm not actually right? worried about Apple, of course, because I think yeah. that their, their, their identity as an innovator is from a continued string of kind right. of innovations. And, you but, know, there but was of course this, it's just built of these things, right? There was so this idea individual... in 2008 and nine among a certain set that like the only reason Apple was successful is because of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is, this is one of the ways which we ta- alluded to in a prior show, which we will not talk about here, what people lose their minds when they think about Apple. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. but, but the, but the upshot is that um, I'm not really worried about them, right? I'm worried about maybe smaller companies which come up with something really cool, right? Which is, has that sense of inevitability. And so is going to be basically not easily protectable unless the, unless the patenting scheme is such that I'm not willing to support it anyway, right? I want a very brief period where yeah. I, innovators can be identified, right? I mean, because ultimately what we want is people to come up with cool new things, right? Right. And we want to give them help with that when the market won't do it, right? Because the thing they've come up with is 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 only obvious in hindsight, right? And only, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, but but again, the costs of doing that are really hard. Like, you know, identifying those boundaries is so hard that it may not be worth its cost, which is why I'm not, you know, supporting well, it. Particular. So, I mean, there are a couple of things you can do to help this. So I think, I mean, the instinct you're articulating is an instinct a lot of people have about design. I mean, I think there's, it's very hard to channel that instinct through conventional ways of talking about IP in the U.S. because it's hard to channel it through an incentive-based story, right? Because I think, I, my, in, my sense is that in very, in the vast majority of markets, people who are innovative and want to come up with new products are going to do it. And they're going to do it even if other people can copy them pretty quickly because there is some durable reputational value to it and there is some durable economic uh, value. Uh, so I, I think they're going to do it anyway. But still, I think a lot of people have the sense that like those people should, they should just be rewarded, right? I mean, there's some, there's some value in what they've added to the world and they should get the benefit of that and they shouldn't have it all ripped off by Apple, right? They shouldn't have it all immediately go to somebody else. I think that's an instinct a lot of people have. I think there are a lot, there are a lot of things you could do to, to sort of um, reward that kind of thing without doing as much damage. One of which would be to say, you know, you create a much, small, a much uh, shorter term, you uh, make sure that the level of similarity required to infringe is quite high so that it's really ripoffs and not things that are sort of inspired by. And then you, you make sure that if you're going to do that through the design patent system, that you're not getting backdoor forms of that protection through copyright and trademark as well, right? So you'd say you want to kind of narrow shot form. This is actually what people have been trying to advocate with respect to fashion, Yep, believe it or not, is a sort of, I don't think they've actually articulated a, a form of protection that to me satisfies all the criteria that I was just describing. But that's the idea is like, give me a short form of protection. Most people's negative reaction to that, especially in the US, is that um, people don't need it. They don't need it from an economic perspective. And I just think what you're articulating is that that's not really the point, right? It's not the point about whether they would have done it anyway. And I think a lot of people share that instinct. 
there are proposals to modify a, a, a little corner of the copyright statute to provide a general design protection uh, uh, for fashion and maybe even other things. Um, I, my sense is that third piece, Mark, that you put on the table is the thing that never gets talked about, which is what other things are we explicitly going to rule out? Right. Like, so we're going to make this clearer that it does protect you in this way that's beneficial. Here are the things we're definitely going to now resolve. At, they might have been murky before. Maybe you could have tried to argue they were available. No, they're not right. available, right? right? So that there's some kind of trimming back when we expand. All we do is just expand uh, right. without, without trimming back, which, is, which, of course, makes people who are opponents of these expansions say, no, I don't want to open the door to this expansion because you're never actually going to trim anything back. Well, that's, yeah. uh, that's why I think it's important. You know, I, you know what I think about patents. <laughs> so I would do a lot of trimming. Uh, but I'm interested in this thing, as I said, that protects not the, uh, not your monopoly rights to profits, all profits flowing from the innovation and, uh, and, and not uh, anything, you know, long-term, but basically like trademark, it protects identity right? Your identity as something, but not your identity as a producer, right? Uh, But your identity as an innovator. It doesn't protect the innovation. It protects your identity as the innovator. But I I don't know how to operationalize that. The the branch of trademark law that I most closely associate with what you just said is a thing called dilution, protection against dilution, which is basically like a right of publicity for celebrities, only now the celebrity isn't a human being. It's a mark. But you know, I don't like that either. Which is well, why it's surprising. I think you kind of do, actually. <laughs> right, precise, exactly. No, right. No. I'm here to hold up a mirror to you and tell you <laughs> that, in fact, what you want is a form of, of uh, anti-dilution protection. Um, the key word is a form of. Well, well of course. Words. Of course Those it are words. is, right? You don't, words. you don't want the things that don't seem sensible to you, and you want more of the things no, that because, do seem sensible well, be, to you. Of course. Now, my understanding is dilution protects famous marks writ large, right, from having their – from – Things which tend to reduce the association between the source and the the uh, strength and, of the association and the, and the famous correct. mark, right? But 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 expl- ex- quite explicitly under the at least the federal statute, um, without regard to whether consumers are confused. So we yes. make quite explicit in the statute. It's not about whether people would be confused about source, which is your point. It's I know the people who are buying the phone. No, it's not an Apple phone. The people who are buying um, the the you know, pick your other brand of thing that's designed exceptionally well, right? People aren't confused. Yeah, dilution doesn't require yeah, them the to be confused. It doesn't I'm, care. Yeah, but the purpose that I'm talking about is, is protecting your is is protecting you against actual confusion about your identity as the innovator. And, and right, but it could be identity as anything, right? It could be identity as excellence, right? Rolex doesn't want there to course. be Rolex tube socks. Because it doesn't want the superlative, it, what it believes to be the superlative understanding as a watchmaker, sullied by yeah. the people thinking of tube socks. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I don't, I don't like that unless there's actual, unless you can show. Consu- I don't like the erosion of having to show consumer confusion about those things, right? Uh, especially with a mark that lasts for all time, or potentially lasts for all time. What do you mean by erosion? So confusion. There isn't confusion. No one's going to be confused that the Swiss watch firm is now selling socks. Right, and I do not favor. I do not favor protection of that, right? A protection of the, uh, uh, against the tube sock thing, unless you can show that people are actually confused. Right? So, in other words, the dilution standard in general. Uh, but I thought you were arguing for a form of anti-dilution a form, protection, a form of it that's that, limited to innovation. That's, in, that's limited as an to, and, and you have to like key innovations. You're gonna have to create like a category, 
as the law often does. So you're does. reshaping the fame requirement. It's not fame. It's fame for a very particular uh, set of social exactly, objectives. Right, exactly. I mean, it has Famous a different- Famous as innovative in that design It space. has a different purpose than dilution, right? Dilution, uh, than the dilution doctrine well, a narrow at large. One. It's the same kind. It's just narrow. It's more I, focused it on a particular kind, kind of fame. Because it's yeah. not- Well, I mean, what do you think, Mark? Is it same, different? I, it, it has some similarities to it. I mean, it's it's not exactly the same because, you know, well, I mean, this is all operating on the assumption that anyone knows what dilution is, right, in the trademark area, and I have, and I've never been convinced of that. But, yeah, I mean, it is a form of dilution. What you're concerned about is that diluting someone's reputation for being an innovator and that that is necessarily diluted by there being enough similar products on the market quickly, that there's not enough time for the reputation to attach or to uh, to sink in, yeah. right? And I think that is a form of dilution. I think, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why people hate dilution in trademark law among them that nobody knows actually like what it looks like or how it's measured. But I think what you're saying is that this is sort of like a first order principle. It's not necessarily like what would be worked out in doctrine, but that it does imply some things about doctrine. It implies short and it implies, you know, something about the, the kinds of features that would be subject, subject to this protection and something about, you know, how close other people would have to get in order to, um, in order to infringe it. So, uh, you know, again, so, uh, you know, Joe said a minute ago that nothing's ever cut back. So the, the perfect example of that is Europe, right? Europe has a whole series of these sui generis design rights. Uh, and it's a total mess and it's a mess because there are registered design rights, there are unregistered design rights, they have different duration. Um, but those, um, you know, I was at a conference this summer and somebody said, you know, you guys, should do this differently. You should do it as a, a sui generis system because then you'd have these like, you know, yes, there's some messiness to figuring out, you know, registered versus unregistered, but you know, they're relatively short in time and they're sort of designed, you know, created for the purpose of design and not trying to warp these other systems, which, you know, most of us said, yeah, but you haven't actually gotten rid of the other systems either. So you have that layered on top of copyright protection in most countries, plus trademark protection, unfair competition. And so I think it's right that those things never get cut back. So what you're talking about, Christian, I think is scrapping the design patent system starting from scratch and then redesigning it to have some particular features, um, which I think, you know, with sufficient thought about what else you're going to exclude would be an improvement over the system we have now. Yeah, and, and for a much narrower purpose. I mean, part yeah. of the reason you scrap the doctrine is because the, the purpose is is too broad in the existing system. And I would have a much narrower one because I because I kind of have faith in the... I don't know about faith, but uh, uh, more faith in the market to work out the normal case of copycats uh, uh, in terms of design. Like copycats, I think, are a good thing in, 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 in many areas of, of, uh, of competition. Um, I mean, it's what makes competition work in some ways. Well, right? yeah, I mean, it certainly helps diffuse the technology, whatever yeah. it is. So, But speaking of dilution, uh, Mark, we've kept you on for a long time <laughs> and, and kept you away from probably more productive work. Uh, wow, this has been fun. Yeah. Is is there anything else you wanted to you know that our listeners would be remiss not to know about in the uh, in the trademark area or or something they should look at or or something well, you were you were hoping to talk about before we I started talking about these ridiculous ideas yeah, that I had. Look, as as somebody who spends most of his life thinking about trademark law, I, I think there's uh, tons of stuff that your reader, that your listeners should know about trademark that we haven't talked about, but uh, that would probably take a lot longer. So, <laughs> well, those when those will be for as we always say with so many guests, Mark McKenna episodes two, three, four, and five will be sounds good the At sequels least. yeah joe any 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 parting thoughts uh no it's great to talk to mark awesome yeah all right thanks thank, for having me guys thanks a bunch mark take care